You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Outdoor Edge introduces the all-new Razor Guide Pack. Coming in at 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the Razor Guide Pack has it all. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And joining me on the show today is Sam Tekau. Now, Sam has spent the last six years figuring out how to hunt America's number one big game animal. He's in one of the best states in the country, and that's Iowa for chasing after big deer. But he didn't get into hunting until he was an adult. And so as an adult onset hunter, I'm really curious how he went about it, what tips, what tricks, what strategies he's implemented, what resources he used to really figure this thing out. And so I'm pumped for this episode. I hope you are too. We're going to chat with Sam right now. Like he was doing things that were just badass. That was one of the coolest moments of my life. I was really scared, but knowing that Dan had the gun, I did have the rifle, like we would be okay. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And joining me on the show today is Sam Tekow. Now, Sam is a guy from Iowa. He grew up fishing and got into hunting as an adult. And so we're going to cover a lot of that stuff, uh, you know, how how to go about getting into hunting as a hobby, as a sport, once you're in your um, adult life. Because I think that a lot of us who started out gr- or who grew up hunting, and started out young, there's a lot of things that we we may have learned from our parents or grandparents or uncle or whoever that we take for granted. And Sam had to kind of figure all this out. And he's he's still learning just just like we all are. But I'm pretty excited for this conversation. So Sam, thanks for hopping on with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, why don't you start out by sharing with the listeners a little bit about yourself, maybe where you're from, uh, how you, how you got into hunting and what that's looked like lately. Uh, yeah, I'm Sam Techow, born and raised in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. 
it's the eastern half of the state. Um, I grew up uh, fishing with my dad. My dad was a real big fisherman. So the outdoors has always been kind of a big part of my life. Um, kind of spread once you got older and you were able to drive. I was able to go out on my own and kind of learn and experience new things, mushroom hunt, that kind of thing. And once I became an adult, I decided like, hey, I want to spend more time outside. So hunting was like that next step. And I finally just decided to drive down to Bass Pro Shop one day and buy myself a bow and started shooting it. And I actually didn't even buy a tag until like two years later until my buddy killed one. And he's like, hey, man, you can hunt my stand. And I was like, sure. So that was kind of where I started at. Um, learned a lot of things along the way so far, but there was definitely some times where looking back, I'm like, man, I was messing up a lot. Didn't know yeah. what I was doing. Oh, yeah. The the learning curves, especially when you get out there and you don't necessarily have a mentor or you don't sit with someone for several years before getting into it. Uh, I can imagine they're pretty extreme, but it seems kind of crazy. I mean, Iowa is like, especially Eastern Iowa and Southeastern Iowa in specific is like big deer Mecca. I mean, there's big bucks that are pulled out of there all the time. And I'm assuming you grew up with a lot of people who did hunt, but fishing obviously is a huge sport all over the Midwest as well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we got some big deer. I've been on some big deer, seen some big deer, just haven't been able to kill, you know, that really nice one that I want to put on my wall. Got a few euro mounts, but, uh, yeah, it was just, it's tough. It's, it's tough when you don't know where to even start. I mean, you think you can just walk out in the woods and see 140, 150 inch deer, but it's, it's a little bit different when you actually try and do it. Oh yeah. It's, it's kind of a double-edged sword because with with social media now and all the hunting TV shows, you see these guys that get out there, and it seems like every episode they're killing a monster buck. And it, it seems like it would almost be easier than what it is. But once you get out there and start figuring it out for yourself, obviously, deer, they want to survive. I mean, they they have a will to live like you wouldn't believe, and they get smart, and they get... Uh, they get used to hunting pressure, and so going out there and trying to figure that out is pretty intense. Uh, did you have somebody that kind of helped coach you through that stuff, or uh, was it just like get out in the stand and and figure it out day by day? So my, me and my buddy, we've been friends since we were nine years old, and we would always fish together. Well, when I got my bow and started shooting it, he decided he needed to get a bow. And he actually had his uncle's property. It's like 20 acres. Um, and I didn't even know he was hunting. <laughs> he just posted on social media, you know, found a big deer or got a big deer. And I'm like, where did you get that? And he's like, oh, you know, hung a stand. Me and my uncle went out and hung it and got got this deer down. And I'm like, oh, sweet. I'd like to hunt. He's like, we well, can go hunt that stand. Sure. So he showed me where it is. And I mistakenly hunted that one until probably too many times in a row every weekend, you know, Friday night, Saturday, all day, Saturday, Sunday during the rut. And I mean, I saw a few deer, but there's a lot of deer that got downwind of me and they didn't ever show up. And so finally, I think it was like November 16th, I was able to kill a little six pointer, but I mean, I just, I think I just got lucky and he was just a 
young deer that didn't know know any better. Yeah, it's wild how those young deer and and young does they just it, it's like they have no clue and their their instincts and the history with predators or hunt, hunters or hunting pressure just hasn't developed yet. And so I, I feel like every hunter has those stories where they've got small bucks all around them all the time. They're walking through, they're either shooting them or passing them up. And uh, it's cool because you can you can start to see those instincts develop in those reactions to the wrong wind or something that's just off. But then when it comes to hunting big bucks, it's a whole different ball game. I mean, you have to get everything right in order to connect with a big buck most of the time. Sometimes you get lucky and a big one sneaks in and has no clue you're there. But um, that's awesome that you had success pretty early on. Uh, what what have the years since then looked like for you? I mean, are you are you still hunting that same property or have you branched out and looked for other permission? Oh, I've, I've branched out. I was actually, uh, dating a girl at the time and her family had thousand some acres up in, uh, Elkader, Iowa. And he, her uncle gave me permission on, I don't know, two little 200 section, 200 acre section track. And, uh, he basically gave that little section to me and did another section to another guy while I had, so I kind of learned by fire on that spot, which was nice. Cause I was able to see a bunch of deer, but, uh, I looking back on it now that I know what I do and I'm, I wish I could have hunted it differently, but that, uh, that was where I started. And then I just wanted something closer to home too. So I was looking at some public land and I got a few more permissions. Now I got probably sometimes I think too many properties. Cause I'm always wondering where the heck I should go. <laughs> you know, I just always that indecisiveness, especially towards the end of the, or the middle of the rut or the end of the rut. And you only got three or four days to get it done left and, you're getting deer on camera and stuff. It's almost sometimes I'm wondering if I don't have too many places to go, man. It's, it's a good problem to have, but I totally relate to that where you've got all these spots and you're like, man, there could be a big buck here and you sit in the stand. And every time I get in the stand, I'm like, man, maybe I should have gone to the other one. But, uh, that happened to me actually, I think it was November 7th. I think I was sitting, I decided to go on some public and I get set up. And it was about 8.30 and I didn't see, hadn't seen a deer yet. And all of a sudden my cell, cell cam goes off and uh, I immediately dropped everything and I drove an hour south to uh, go hunt that property. And I actually had a pretty good hunt, but I, I dropped everything because of one picture of one deer moving. So, Man, cell cameras have changed the game for sure. And it's, it's amazing that you can get live video or photos straight to your phone. And I, I love it and I hate it because I will, I'll be sitting at home or, you know, something happens where I'm not out in the woods and all of a sudden there's a buck right in front of my camera, right in front of a tree that I hang in. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I wish I was out there. Whereas, you know, if, if you go and pull camera cards or whatever, later on, you look back and you're like, bummer. But when it's live and you can see that hey i could have had an opportunity at this deer if i was there that's a tough pill to swallow yeah that that happened to me a couple times where i'm hunting a different property or i'm sitting at home or at work and i'm like man a shooter buck was just just 20 yards away from the tree i hang in that's that's it was tough 
Yeah. I, I'm on a property right now. I'm actually in my buddy's shop recording this and he's got 10 acres of woods and he's had some really, really nice bucks here in the past. Well, I, I knew I was going to be on the road for most of the summer. So I gave him a bunch of my trail cameras and I was like, Hey dude, put these up and check them. And you know, hopefully it helps you connect with a big buck that we've seen. And he's like, all right, sweet. So he put them up. Well, I get back from my, my summer of traveling and I'm like, dude, how, how'd the trail cameras turn out? He's like, man, I haven't really gotten to go out at all. He's like, I haven't even pulled cards. And so this last week I went out and pulled all the cards, start going through them. And one camera in specific had bucks on it every day during daylight. And sometimes they'd be in there for an hour, just walking around, sparring with each other. And I was like, dude, if, if he had a cell camera or if I had cell cameras up there and I could relay the information to him, it would have been night and day. I mean, he could have been like, all right, I'm, I'm doing whatever it takes. Like I'm going to take off in the morning and go and hunt that spot. But because he didn't have that up-to-date information, he just, he just didn't prioritize it. And that's a, that's a difficult one. I, I've switched over on my main hunting property to all cell cameras. And now it's the flip side of the coin where all I'm seeing is coyotes and raccoons. I mean, every night I've got them running through there and it seems like all the, all the deer have disappeared. It doesn't help also that the property that they all come from, there's a river bottom property right across the road and they've been logging it. And so I think it's keeping the deer from, you know, crossing that barrier where all the people have been working and the machinery has been and coming up into the field and on the wood, the, the woodlot edge that I hunt. And so now I'm to the point where I'm like, man, it's, it's definitely possible that deer are still slipping through in between my cameras and I'm just not getting them on trail camera, but it's discouraging to the point where I don't spend a lot of time hunting out there right now, just because of the lack of deer activity. I've definitely seen that where I'll have a trail camera out and I go and hunt the property and I'm like, ah, just hunt it just cause I haven't hunted it and I haven't gotten a lot of pictures lately. And then all of a sudden I'm on that property and I'll see five, six deer work through and they're just 10 yards off, 20 yards off on a dip, just using a different trail, different yep. summer trail, or I've hung this, the camera on a summer trail and now it's winter time or whatever. And they're just, slightly off and so i'm not getting them and i would have thought that there was no deer but there's deer using the property and moving through the property and so it's definitely good to be there and sit and throw some sits at it whether early or late or during the rut or whatever and just to see what's actually going on get boots on the ground and actually see what that property is doing oh for sure i i've had the same thing where you know i i see them in person or um, you know, I'll actually finally go and sit and I'll see deer and none of my trail cameras pick them up. And it's so difficult because no matter how many trail cameras you have, unless you have one every 20 yards facing opposite directions, like you're just not going to get everything moving out there. And I, I tried to play the game this year where I put cameras back to back facing opposite directions down the fence line. And then I'd go, you know, 50 yards and do another set like that. And even still, you know, I, I'm not getting all the deer that are hopping the fence out into the beans or out. I mean, it's not beans now, but hopping the fence out into the field. I, I know they're still sneaking through without me knowing it. And, 
last year, I want to say it was last year, maybe it's been two years now, I was going into the woods and I called it the sanctuary. I stay out of it completely, but the landowner had some people logging it. So I went in to talk to them. And when I did, they were like, hey, is that your trail camera in the woods? And I was like, no, everything I've got is on the field edge. And they're like, oh, well, there's a trail camera in a giant pile of corn. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Nobody else is supposed to be hunting here. And it's illegal to bait during season here. And so I went in there, I pulled the guy's card and checked it. And I had a ton of, I mean, obviously there's a ton of deer coming to eat, you know, two full bags of corn that are spread out on the ground. But it was just interesting for me to see how many deer were in the area that I wasn't getting on camera. But then when he had his camera hanging right over the corn, I saw every one of them. Did you end up figuring out who it was? No, I, uh, so there's a guy and his son who run cattle and crops on this 230 acre chunk of property. And I talked to them. They said, no, we don't know who it is. And it's funny because when I pulled his camera card, I, I could see the date that he bought it because he was like in his bathroom or in a room messing with it. And so I've got like a close up picture of his face. And then he's also walked through and, you know, dumped corn. I've seen him and his buddy. And then uh, I'm guessing it's his wife and kids. They've all been out there. And so I've got their pictures. And I went and talked to everybody I knew in the area, said, hey, do you know this guy? Nobody knew who it was. And then I also went on Onyx and looked at all the landowner names around there for like a half mile because I was like, this guy's coming in from the backside. He's not going through the main, like there's a, there's a cattle gate that goes into the woods and I, I have a camera there. And I was like, man, I'm going to catch him, you know, like driving in, dumping corn. Well, he's walking into the woods from somewhere. So it has to be pretty close. But I went on Onyx and then I searched every name that I found on Onyx on Facebook and tried to compare pictures and nobody looked even close to him. And so I probably need to do that again because maybe he bought the property and Onyx hadn't quite updated yet, but he's got to live right there somewhere. But he hasn't hung a stand or anything. It's just a camera and a bunch of corn. So um, my big issue now is I don't want to get in trouble because this guy's got corn in the woods. He's not supposed to. And if I hunt too close to it, knowing that there's corn there, then I could get in trouble for baiting or, you know, having the knowledge of there being bait in the woods and I'm hunting too close to it. Do you guys have like 200 yard laws or anything like that? Yeah, there's hunting over a bait site. Yeah, there's something like that. I mean, in the regulations, I know it says, I don't know what it says about distance, but I know that it says, I think it's 30 days before season, you have to have all the bait pulled. And so that's, that's the tough part. We can still use mineral. We can use salt blocks, things like that. But as far as hard crops go, like you can't dump corn, you can't gather acorns or walnuts or or persimmons or anything and like gather them in order to feed deer. And so I'll have to look at it and figure out exactly how far it is because from the main tree that I hunted, I hunted out of a, a hang on stand for years. I switched to a saddle this year so I can be more mobile, but um, the tree that I hunted out of, it couldn't be more than 80 yards from there. And so once I found the corn, I actually just pulled my tree stand down and quit hunting out of it just to play it safe so I didn't get busted for something stupid. 
Uh, how'd you like your saddle this year so far? I love it. I will, I'll never switch back. In fact, my buddy whose property I'm on, I've gone and done a couple sits in his woods and he's got, he's got, um, stands that are hang ons in the trees. And instead of going up the stand and sitting on the seat, I'll actually just wear my saddle out there, climb up and I'll still hang from my saddle because the mobility of it is unmatched. I mean, there's nothing else that gives you that range of shooting unless maybe you're in a tower blind, but I, I basically gave away all my stands Said, Hey, if anybody wants these, you can have them. I'm going to be in a saddle from now on. See, I'm almost starting to go back to some hang ons, especially for some of my private ground. Um, I really like the saddle, especially for public land going back deep and just getting back there light. But some of the private permissions I got, it was just kind of frustrating because a lot, one of my properties I have is an hour and a half drive. And so just waking up at three 30 in the morning, three days in a row, and then having to go in and then set up my sticks, set up my little platform and then get in the saddle. There's a couple of times I'm flirting with, you know, shooting light just cause it was a longer drive or I took longer eating breakfast or something like that. And just, I wish there was times I wish that, I would have had a preset stand there. So it's like, I'm almost going back. I love my saddle, but especially on some of the private permissions, I think next year I'm going to look into getting a couple more tree stands and just at least having those there. And then having the saddle with me, if I do see something, a lot of movement somewhere else, or just want to hop over here. But the saddle is definitely a game changer as far as public lane goes. Oh yeah. Yeah. I tried I tried my hand at a climber and I made the mistake of using my buddy's climber and it was so beat up. I mean, it barely stuck to the tree and I almost lost the platform at one point. And I, I mean, it took me like an hour and a half just to find a tree that I could put his climber in because of branches, because of straightness, all of that. And so I was like, I'm never going to do that again. That was frustrating. And so for probably two or three seasons now, I've been talking about getting a saddle um because one thing that i i noticed and it kind of drove me crazy because i would sit in that same tree every single season and it was an awesome tree it produced a ton and then one year it seemed like all of the deer were crossing about 80 90 yards down the fence line out into the field and they wouldn't walk the field edge they'd just go out into the middle of the field and start feeding and so i had to watch these deer over and over and i'm like man i don't want to have to pull my my platform down and then unscroll my pegs, go do it in a different tree, only to have them start using this path that I'm hunting over again. And so when I started listening to hunting podcasts and heard more and more people talking about saddle systems and how mobile it is, and once you get good at it, you can get up and down the tree uh, relatively quickly. I was like, that's the way I've got to go. Because if I, if I pick the wrong tree one day, it's not going to be a ton of noise, a ton of commotion getting up in a different tree closer to where they're crossing or closer to the trails that they're using. That was actually my uh, first, my first year of saddle hunting. It was the perfect scenario for it. I up in Elkater, uh, I had some pre-hung stands and they were on field edges and I'd always see some deer walking down in the creek bottom. Well, I didn't have a stand down there. So I was like, well, I'll grab the saddle and go down in there. And it was like the best decision I did on that property. I ended up seeing 
six, seven bucks, but of course they were on the other side of the Creek. So then I made another move and ended up getting a shot on probably 150 inch deer and I hit him. It was just, uh, got him right in the shoulder and followed blood and we never found him. That was the year before tracking dogs were legal in Iowa too. If, if, uh, tracking dogs were legal, I at least would have brought one in and, uh, at least gave it a better, you know, probably at least found a better way to try and get on him. But I just lost blood and I, I think we might've found him or found at least a few live or more evidence of him, but we just didn't have that dog or anything. No, nowhere to go after the last blood. So, yeah, that's a bummer. I mean, tracking dogs are awesome and I'm, I'm about to send my dog off for training for waterfowl shed hunting and blood tracking. And so I'm excited for that side of things, but it's interesting to see uh have you seen the videos of the drone deer recovery uh company yes yes i just saw some like last week don't they use like thermal imaging or yeah they do thermal imaging and it i i've got a feeling that's the way of the future i mean i think a lot more people are going to be using that type of technology or hiring a company like that to come out and find a deer or you know help recover a deer that has been shot because I don't remember what it was. My buddy also has a podcast. It's about out- outdoor entrepreneurs. It's called the Two Bucks Podcast. And he just got the guy who owns that company on. And he was telling him a story about how these guys went out, or this guy went out, shot a deer. He went back, got his wife, got the four-wheeler. They were looking for the deer, end up rolling the four-wheeler. It turned into this huge deal. And... Uh, I think the guy got pretty seriously injured. And so they end up calling this company and they came out and it was like within 60 seconds of him getting the drone up in the air that they found that deer and recovered it. That's crazy. I, I would wonder though, if how many people would take advantage of the drone technology and use it to scout deer. Oh That's yeah. The only issue I have with it is just like thermal imaging in general is just like people using it just to either find deer where they're bedded or where they're hanging out at. And so I I'm wondering what laws and rules and regulations they're going to put in place. Like whether you have to have a license for it or uh, it'll be interesting to see with how technology goes. You you see attacks on the technology when it comes to even cellular trail cameras in I want to say it was Arizona that completely outlawed trail cameras as far as hunting goes. And there, I mean, people are quick to jump on that stuff. And if, if they get a couple seasons out of it, awesome, but there's definitely going to be regulations with it because I know that, um, here in Missouri, I bought a trail camera this or not a trail camera, a drone this year. And I went out and I was shooting and just, you know, plink and steal at three, 400 yards. And I was taking drone video of it. And I was like, oh, this is sweet. Well, the drone can fly quite a ways. I think direct line of sight, it can get over a mile away. And so I was like, man, I'm going to just fly it out over the property, get some cool pictures and stuff. And this was maybe July. And I fly it out. And as soon as I do, I get over the bean field. And I saw a bunch of does hanging out. And then I just panned in a big circle and then there was a bachelor group of bucks on the neighbor's cornfield. And I was like, dang, this is really cool. But I could see how quickly people could take advantage of it and, and start using it for exactly what you're talking about. You know, flying up in the middle of the night, figuring out where the deer are bedded and then hanging, a, uh, doing a, um, mobile setup, you know, real close to them the next morning. 
and anymore they're cheaper and cheaper too like i remember when they first came out there's a few thousand bucks at least as some of the higher end ones but now you can i feel like you can get a decent one for a few hundred bucks oh yeah yeah the technology all around i mean with everything hunting whether it be range finders and scopes and hunting apps and uh, trail cameras it's it's pretty gnarly i've had to look at the different rules and regulations in every state that I've gone because I bought a bunch of cameras and I was like, Hey, I'm going to hang some up on my property here. And then knowing that I'd be traveling out West, I was like, I'm going to hang some of these cellular cameras up in the mountains and just see what comes through. I think it'd be awesome to be sitting here at night. And all of a sudden my phone goes off and I've got a mountain lion in front of my camera or a pack <laughs> of wolves or an elk or something. But with that, there's a lot of places like Utah. I want to say you can't, hunt within you can't hunt in the general area of a cellular camera for like seven days or something like that and so you have to not use it or you can't use it to basically scout for animals and then go and kill them how many states are you going to hunt this year or have hunted this year um so we did utah i've done utah wisconsin colorado missouri and I'll be going down to Texas this weekend. So all of those states so far have been big game states. I, I did one day of waterfowl hunting in Colorado. And then when I go down to Texas, that will be waterfowl and Sandhill Crane. And then I'm going to try to sneak in a mountain lion hunt this year out in Utah. And if I do and we, we have success, I'm going to put a trail camera up in that area and then um, you know, just monitor it throughout the year and see what I can get in. But yeah, lots of different states this year. I'm going to try to branch out to a couple different ones next year because I really, really want to get into archery elk hunting. And everyone that I've talked to said, once you go to that, like you're going to hang up the rifle and never use it again. That's my ultimate goal is, uh, find some place and get on a archery elk hunt just to hear those screaming bulls and get within 30 yards of something that that big, that'd be insane. Oh yeah. It's, it's a rush. I'm telling you, I had bulls bugling within a hundred yards of me. I shot one this year and as I was quartering it out, they were just going nuts on the hill right above me. And my buddy could see him. He was across the Valley watching me. And he's like, he called me. He's like, dude, it's a bummer. You're not with someone who has a tag. Cause there are elk right on top of you. And I'm like, trust me, man. I can almost feel their breath. They're so close. Like they were so loud. And to think about that during the rut, cause this was way after the rut happened out in Colorado and to think about having a bow and like actually communicating with them. I've never elk called in my life and to communicate with them and try to get them in. It's like the best of every type of hunting. Yeah. The, when I first started turkey hunting and I first had that, first gobble like that was just a rush and so i can only imagine what six seven hundred pounds of animal calling back to you coming into you that would be that'd be insane oh yeah what uh have you have you started to branch out into other types of hunting other than um whitetail hunting uh i do turkey every spring um and i've started to look into putting in for points for I think I put it in for points for uh, Wyoming uh, mule deer and elk and then uh, Montana 
mule deer and elk as well. Nice. So starting to look out, out West. I actually did go to Nebraska this, what was it? September, first part of September. I went out there for a week and that was definitely a, something, a new experience. Yeah. I traveling. was by myself. I was by myself. And so that, that just complicated things even more. It's, it's always a daunting task, but so much adventure involved when you try to travel to a new place, especially without any intel and you just go and try to figure it out on your own. And there's a lot of those Western states that hold pretty, pretty awesome whitetail that are overlooked because everybody goes out to those states for elk and mule deer. And so that's something that I want to do. I really want to get down in a river bottom, like up in Montana and try to get a big whitetail buck out there. I know they have some big ones. They, I know it was the, the Drury's always go out and they made like the Milk River famous. So oh, yeah, the, I, I think a lot of times too out there, the whitetails do get overlooked. I think a lot of people go out there for mule deer just because they have whitetails back home. And so they want to go get a mule deer. Well, there's plenty of whitetails out there too, and they just completely ignore them. So oh, yeah. it'd be something and that would be very much piquing my interest going out west for some whitetail. I don't, I don't remember what state it is. It might be Wyoming that your deer tag is good for either a mule deer or a whitetail deer. I could be wrong on that. Maybe it's Montana. It's one of those states right there. And I had some buddies. It's got to be Wyoming because I'm pretty sure they went to Wyoming and they had a deer tag and they were, it was a doe tag and they were hoping to get a mule deer because they had never shot one. And then they ended up having whitetails like every day in front of them. And they're like, we're holding out for a muley. And then it came towards the end of season or at least the end of their trip out there. And they were like, all right, we're going to shoot. We're going to shoot a whitetail out here. And they did. They connected on, I think, two, two whitetail does. Yeah, the, my Nebraska tag was good. It was uh, any deer. So I could shoot a doe or a buck, mule deer or whitetail. There was just certain rules on certain tracks of land where, especially the public, you couldn't shoot uh, mule deer does. That was the only stipulation on certain tracks of land out there. So. Oh, okay. That's uh, it's, it's cool because deer hunting is... I mean, it's a ton of fun no matter what you're hunting. And I always thought there was a big divide in habitat and like where the mule deer and the whitetail were. And I was on a friend's property out in Colorado and I was uh, driving back at night. We had just got done on a waterfowl hunt on the river and I was driving back through the field. And as I'm going, I see two bucks and one of them was a whitetail. And it was a, I mean, it was like probably 130, 140 inch whitetail. And then there was like, there was a 160 inch mule deer and they were both out in this cornfield feeding. And I was like, dang, I didn't realize they hung out in such close proximity. And I'm curious if, you know, there's hybrids where they, they breed. But when I went to Utah this year to help a friend get a deer, uh, there were a couple different bucks out there. And it was kind of funny because one side of the rack would look just like a mule deer. You know, it had a fork up front, a fork up top. And then the other side of the rack would just be a, a typical whitetail frame where it had a main beam and then G one, two and three popping up off of it. And I was like, that'd be pretty gnarly. In fact, we called one of them 50 or 50 because I was like, it's 50% whitetail, 50% mule deer. And I doubt it was, I, I didn't see any whitetails out there, but just the rack structure made it seem that way. Yeah. Where I went in Nebraska, there was actually a good mix of both. I ran into 
uh, bachelor group, I want to say it had a little mix of both whitetail and mule deer. I think it was just because it was so early in the season that they were both, they're all feeding on the same piece. They were all right in the crop field. So I imagine maybe once it got later, they might've split it up, split up and divided, but I'm not sure. I would, I would love to hunt a place like that because I know in Colorado and in a lot of Western states, the mule deer rut is pretty late, like sometimes January. And it'd be so cool to be able to hunt two different ruts on the same tag. You know, you have your November rut for whitetail and then two months later, the mule deer rut kicks in. That would be, that'd be pretty awesome. I didn't realize there was such a divide between them. I thought, I just figured it was a few weeks later. I didn't know it was, it could go as late as January. Yeah. There's, there's actually quite a few places where, um, where the rut happens way late or like at the very beginning of the following year, I think down in like Florida and Georgia, the whitetail rut is really late. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, it probably just kind of works its way down the country as it's, as it gets warmer, the ruts later. But then in Florida, if you actually look at a map, I think the Florida fish and wildlife or whatever their agency is, there's a map on there and it shows different regions of Florida and when the rut kicks in and it's, it's crazy how different it is. I mean, it could be a month or two months apart, just depending on what part of Florida you're in. Yeah. I know my buddy who lives down in Arkansas, he was telling me that and you know, county by county, it can be deer rutting in one county, but just one county over or whatever it's later. So it's just, I think just as you go south, it's a little less structured and when the timing of the rut is. Yeah, we, uh, here in Missouri, I didn't see a ton of rut activity this year. Like I shot, I shot one buck early in the season, well before the rut kicks off. And then it just didn't seem like my trail cameras were picking up a whole lot of chasing, um, or, you know, fighting over a doe and then. I've got a buddy who has two cameras up on his property and he just linked them to my account or shared, shared access to him with me. So I always check his cameras every day. And even right now, I think it was yesterday, like 10 AM, there were multiple bucks that came through during daylight and there was one buck that was just dogging this still hard. And I'm like, no way, man, maybe it's just a weird year and the rut kicked in super late for some reason because it seems like every day he's got big bucks during daylight right now. Did you guys get that uh, cold spell in the middle of November around the 14th where it got um, super cold down in like the teens? I I know we did have, yeah, we did have a couple days of cold because I got my son out, but I was basically, I'm basically missed the whitetail rut here in Missouri every year now um, because lately the season that i hunt out in out in colorado they bumped it back it used to end at the end of october and so i'd come back and hunt the rut and this year it went through like the 7th of october of november and so i missed that whole first week of what typically is the peak rut here but yeah it's it, i mean it's been kind of a kind of a wild ride. I mean, I, I just love to travel and hunt. I like to go new places. I like to chase different types of game. And so, uh, it's just always difficult to give up, you know, one of my number one passions, which is chasing whitetail 
especially in the peak time to do it, uh, to go and chase after something else. But, uh, I think it would have been a lot more, I would have been a lot more bitter about it had I not had success out in Colorado this year. My, uh, good guy I work with, he went out to, uh, Montana this year and he went out for a rifle for mule deer and he, him and two of his buddies ended up getting two mule deer out there. And so it's just like, he came back and he's, he's was saying, yeah, you know, I'm real mad or not really upset, but kind of upset that I'm missing the rut. And he said, I'm going to be checking my trail cameras out there every day. And he goes, of course, those, that's when the big deer is going to show up in my camera. And of course, when he got back, he was happy that he was successful in Montana, but he's like, yeah, I, every day there, there was a big deer on my cameras that I could have hunted, you know? So he's kicking himself one, one end, but at the same time, he was happy that he was successful out there. So, Oh yeah. I've, I've had that happen two years in a row now. Uh, two years ago, I went out with my buddy and, uh, he drew a mountain goat tag. So I was out there mountain goat hunting with him and it wasn't during the rut, but I had a list of the deer that I, I would take if they presented a shot. And I get off the mountain, get back into cell service, and my buddy sends me a picture of one of my target bucks that he shot. And I'm like, dang, man, if I would have been out there, you know, I could have I could have had a shot at that deer. And then last year, we went out to Colorado, and I had hunted a little bit before we went out, and I had success. I got two does one morning with my bow, um, but just didn't have any mature buck sightings. And I left that morning. And as I was getting uh, through the mountain pass in between Denver and like rifle, I I had a little bit of service and I, I got a picture of like one of my number one bucks that I've ever chased after. And he was standing at the base of the ladder stand. And I'm like, you have got to be kidding. This is, this is ridiculous. The fact that the day I leave, he decides to come in. Is that... Uh... Colorado, is that all over the counter or is there some units that you still have to draw for? There's a lot of draw units and I don't know as far as mule deer go, but I know uh, for rifle, um, rifle elk, there is, gosh, I want to say about half the state is over the counter. And there's a list of all the different units that you can hunt on an over the counter tag. You can literally drive out there, go to Walmart, buy your tag and go out and hunt. And so far they're not capped. So they'll give out as many as, as people will buy. And, uh, for the last four years, I think it, I think I missed one year in there, but for about four years I've been going out and I just buy a tag on my way out. Yeah. That's, uh, one of the, my buddies, he puts in for a bunch of different States and he was planning on going to, uh, Wyoming, I think this year, him and his dad. And, uh, or he was hoping that they would draw and he said, when he didn't, he goes, well, I guess it's Colorado again. <laughs> so it's kind of like, I feel like everyone's backup plan if they want to, if they do want to go out West and go after some elk. Oh yeah. And the amount of opportunities out there is insane. And I, I try to encourage as many people as possible. Like, Hey, even if you're not going to hunt out there this year, or it might be five years before you do start building points because you know, you might have your first hunt ever out west be a killer hunt that you draw an amazing unit and yeah between wyoming utah colorado montana idaho nevada like there's so many cool places that you can hunt even down into arizona new mexico and now uh 
a lot of the eastern states with Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation reintroducing elk to certain places. There's some states out east, like I think Kentucky. I don't know if Virginia is one yet, but I think Kentucky and Pennsylvania both have uh, elk seasons that are open to non-residents. Might be wrong, but I feel like one of the Carolinas just opened up. Uh, it was Virginia, but I feel like one of those eastern states just opened up either like a very limited, probably just resident elk season. But I think that they just opened that up because their population got up high enough. Yeah, I know that each year, like I'll I'll read up on different states and see where the elk herds at. And uh, two years ago, they opened it up here in Missouri, and they said they wanted the the population to be around 200, I believe. And early in that year, maybe it was at the end of the year before it was at like 172. And so basically if there were 38 or 28 cows that had calves, they were going to open it up and they sure enough, they did. And it was a hundred percent success rate on elk that season for the tags that they gave out. And it was only a handful. And then the next year, I want to say they did six, and then now they've opened up a bear season and they only gave out a handful of tags for that. But we're going to see that more and more. And hopefully, you know, a lot more of the eastern states are going to be holding elk. And it's going to be people are going to talk about it like the good old days because they're unpressured. You know, they're transplants that haven't been called at a ton. They haven't experienced the hunting pressure. You know, I'm sure they're going to encounter humans to a certain degree, but they're not going to associate it with with danger until they're actually shot at or you know they have run-ins that are negative with people yeah those first handful of years it's going to be it's going to be good because like you said they haven't been shot at there's no negative association with humans yeah i so you're going to be able to get away with some more some more mess ups i think it would be absolutely wild to be in some of those terrains like I, th I think about Florida, you know, I don't know what the history with Florida has been with elk, if they've ever had elk or if they're doing reintroduction programs down there, but I just think about Florida and chasing elk in that, in that climate, in that environment, it would be so gnarly. And I hear from people who hunt whitetail down there and they're like, it's insane. It's like nothing you've ever experienced. You know, you're hunting marshes and there's deer that are basically just walking through a foot of water everywhere they go and then you have to compete with like pythons and alligators and crazy crazy animals that you know if i ran into an alligator out here i don't even know what i'd do and they're having to deal with that all the time and then they're hunting the heat you know they're hunting whitetails in 95 degree weather with mosquitoes everywhere for me i don't know that that's my cup of tea maybe i'd try it once but i don't like getting bit up a ton i don't like being soaking wet with sweat while i'm out in the tree stand yeah, it was not fun in Nebraska. It was a high of 105. I think the low Holy was like cow. 78 was like the low at night for the first five days in Nebraska. It was a dry heat, though, so it was a little different than the humidity here in Iowa, but it was still miserable. So yeah, down no there thanks. in Florida, that yeah, that's not for me either. No, I, I feel like Georgia would be pretty sweet. I know they get pretty humid and it gets hot there, too. But certain parts of Georgia are just gorgeous. Like you're going through the mountains and uh, it would be a lot of fun to chase bucks in the mountains out there. Um, I just like big woods hunting. I love hunting field edges too. Like that's been my bread and butter down here in Missouri for quite a while now. 
but I grew up hunting the Northwoods in Wisconsin. I mean, thick timber and with a rifle, you're hard pressed to find a shot over 70 yards. And so, um, that's always got a special place in my heart. And I like, I like being surprised by deer. I like hearing a twig snap and being like, Oh crap, I got to turn around really, really slowly. I don't know if that's a squirrel or a deer or a coyote where a lot of the properties I hunt here in Missouri, if I shoot a deer, the odds are I've been watching that deer slowly work its way down a fence line or, uh, through the middle of a field for 20, 30 minutes. That's pretty much what it is here. Uh, for the most part, I mean, you get some big open cornfields late season that you can shoot out, you know, over hundred yards or so, but for the most part, it's 70, 80 yard shots for muzzleloader shotgun. But, um, the one thing I've learned is well, for the most part, big deer aren't stupid and they don't walk through the open. So I've learned to hunt the cover, the thick cover, the, the woods a little bit more than just the field edges. That was kind of where I first started was just over a cornfield, over a field edge. And I learned that the big deer like to be protected. They like that security cover. Oh yeah. They, they're elusive, man. And those guys that get out there and they're shooting monster bucks every year, the guys who have, you know, 15, 20 Boone and Crockett deer that they've killed. I just don't even understand it. Like I know that, I know that some of them have access to pretty amazing properties where they've done a lot of habitat improvement and management on, but the guys, especially that go out on public land and they travel all over, over the country and they're shooting multiple 150 inch deer everywhere they go. Like I would love to sit down and just pick their brain and figure out exactly what they're doing or how they're finding that much success. Because I mean, most of us that hunt the Midwest, you know, we're not shooting a deer like that every five years, much less multiple in one year. Yeah. I mean, and even in Iowa, it's, you can see them, you can, you might have them around the neighborhood, but getting on them and hunting them is, is a different ball game than, you know, some of what those guys can do. Yeah. What, uh, what do you have planned for next year or are you still in season up there? We're still in season. It's shotgun season, second shotgun season here. So I don't hunt that. I'll uh, get back out the 19th as uh, late season opens back up. So I'll still have my bow tag and then I'll have my late season tag. And uh, I'm taking my brother-in-law and we're going to try and get his first deer, the muzzleloader. And then I might make a few trips down south to one of the permission properties I have and uh, try and get one there. Otherwise I might just kind of stick around here, try and pop out after work every once in a while. So hopefully a decent one walks by. I'm not going to be picky. I at least want to shoot one more doe or one more deer at least. So if it comes down to it, I'll shoot a doe, but that's my plan for the, at least the remaining year. The next year we're actually having a baby in April, our first baby. So it'll be, oh, congrats. Uh, yeah, I think, I think I'll be sticking around for at least the next year, sticking around home, trying to hunt as much as I can here, but so no trips planned as of yet. Okay. Uh, have you, have you noticed a shift in the animals that you go after as you've been hunting? Cause what you've been hunting for six years now, is that right? Yes. Uh, so, so going from year one, you know, I, I know 
like with me, if I take a new person out, I'm like, dude, anything that comes in front of you, as long as it's legal, go ahead and shoot it. Um, but typically there's like that progression of the animal that you'd be willing to take as, as you hunt more and more, what's that been like for you? Yeah. So the first time I ever hunted, I uh, sent a video, I think it was before Snapchat even, I sent a picture or video to my buddy who I was sitting in a stand with a doe. She was actually licking my, the, the ladder stand. She was licking the ladder and he just texted me back like shooter, just shooter. Just, and I was like, ah, I really wanted to shoot a buck. You know, it was the first year I wanted to shoot a buck. Well, about another six days later, I ended up shooting like a little six pointer, you know, one and a half year old deer. And I'm like, Oh, sweet. Well, next year I wanted to shoot a bigger buck. And, uh, so that ended up being about a two and a half year old, um, nothing crazy. He's got decent mass. It's what stinks is I think he would have been a decent one a couple of years if he get if I gave him a couple more years, but he was a bigger deer than what I shot the year before. And so that was kind of what tripped my trigger. And then, uh, I think the next year I went without shooting a buck. I don't, I think that was just, I think I had like some crazy high expectations I think I remember I kept caught myself saying, Oh, I'm only going to shoot a four-year-old. Well, yeah. Good luck, bud. You know, it's yeah. your third year hunting. You, <laughs> good luck. They're not around every tree, even in Iowa. So, uh, um, I think that was the third year and, uh, didn't shoot a buck and then, uh, ended up shooting probably another two and a half year old, if I had to guess. And then, uh, I think that was then the next year I didn't shoot one. That was the one I shot him in the shoulder and, uh, never found him, never shot a buck that year. And then I think it was, it was last year end up shooting what is either a really nice two and a half year old or a three and a half year old deer. Uh, I think I dry scored him around 120 inches, 120 some inches. And, uh, so this year I just, my goal was shoot something that is, as big or bigger than him. So nice. whether that be a three and a half year old or four and a half year old or whatever, but that was kind of my goal this year. And, um, so yeah, just slowly trying to learn about what the older age class bucks like to do, where they like to be and how they like to react to different scenarios. Yeah. Do you have, uh, do you have some target bucks in mind this year? I have a couple down on this one property um he's been hanging around he busted off it would be his like g3 but i mean he's still probably 135 145 inch deer he's been kind of like that homebody buck i've had him on camera since you know early season and then multiple times during the rut he was actually the deer that i got out of my stand on november 7th and drove an hour and a half south to go try and get on him. Um, but he's been the one I've gotten a few here and there on some other cameras. Uh, some of my other properties that I have the cell cameras on there, it's only like 15, 20 acres. So it's not like they're spending a whole lot of time there. They're just kind of moving through up and down the Creek. And, uh, so the, just the one down South, but I've definitely had some nice shooter ones that would, uh, would have gotten a shot out of me 10 out of 10 times. Yeah. It's, it's always fun to see deer. I mean, whether or not you plan on shooting them, there's something rejuvenating when you're sitting in the sand all day and all of a sudden you see any deer movement. It's, it's exciting, but 
that's pretty cool that you've got one that you're going after and that you've seen multiple. Um, I've got to ask before we hop off, what would you tell yourself if you could go back to when you first started hunting, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself as a new hunter? Um, that scent control, like spraying yourself down before you go out does not make you invincible. Uh, you need, still need to keep the wind in your face. That took me about two years to figure out. Kept on thinking, well, why is this deer blowing at me? I sprayed myself down with this magic potion stuff, but it, it doesn't work like that. That was like the first thing, you know, that I thought. Just spraying yourself down made you put this magic barrier up between you and the deer. And then I've kind of finally realized, like, no, you need, you need to play the wind. You need to take scent control really seriously and play the wind so that's probably the first thing i tell myself and the second thing i'd tell myself is uh get more mobile and don't sit the same tree stand uh <laughs> three weekends in a row five days in a row or whatever um because you definitely get burnt out and you burn out that stand pretty quickly oh yeah that's that's all great advice i'd be curious to see the progression of scent control with hunters because i was the same way you know growing up in wisconsin I, I probably look like a fool. I was soaking myself down with uh scent killer and I was pinning those um scent cover the wafers, wafers on. Oh yes. man. I had those on my hat all and my over. coat. <laughs> the dry earth ones. We used them yes. all the time and we'd put our clothes in in bins with them. And then I started using cedar and I would put my clothes in uh, a bin and then put cedar planks in it as a cover scent. And I have actually heard a lot of really good things about cedar, that it's a natural uh, insect repellent. And I've even heard of guys that will put cedar chips out in, in front of their stand in the woods. And they've said that uh, they've watched deer go and like roll around in it and lay down in it. And I was like, man, that's really interesting. But it's it's a pretty potent smell, you know. And so it could be a great um, cover scent. But for me now... I don't really do any scent control. And there's a lot of people who are like, you're an idiot for that. But I play the wind. And if the wind is right, and I know the travel corridors of these deer, I've had multiple deer where they're within five degrees, maybe 10 degrees of of going downwind of me. But I just play the stands in the locations that I hunt with the wind. And I've shot deer at 20 yards. In fact, I shot one with my rifle and one with my bow one year at 20 yards and they were both within yards of winding me and the wind could have shifted it, it you know it could have just blown that way a little bit and busted them but so far as far as deer that i've seen uh wind me and take off it's very very few and that's one thing that i love i mean i love doing it without all the the gadgets and the gimmicks that you find on on TV shows and to get out there and just use the wind to your advantage, because like you said, it doesn't make you invincible having all this stuff. There's stuff that definitely helps, but I am not going to be the guy who has a separate washer and dryer for my hunting clothes. Like I just have no desire to go that deep into it. I'm not going to pour gasoline on myself. That's for sure. But if I can play the wind, I know my odds are way better. Yeah. The, I don't wear my clothes to the gas station or anything like that. I don't even like wearing it to where I'm hunting. I'll get changed when I get there, but like from hunting in Nebraska and like hunting out West, I got to imagine out there, like 
a lot of times you're in the backcountry and you don't get a change of clothes, you know what I mean? Or you only have so many changes of clothes, so you got to play the wind. And in Nebraska, yeah. when it was 105 degrees, you get soaking wet pretty quick. And so it's like, well, I'm a stinky mess. Uh, I better keep that wind in my face or, you know, off of where I think the deer are. So I, I may or may not have talked about this on this podcast before, but I talked to a guy who's, whose property we hunt up in Wisconsin and he's a big time elk hunter. He goes out every year and he's a pretty diehard guy. He goes against the flow with a lot of things. He never calls. He never bugles. Uh, I shouldn't say he never calls. He never uses a bugle because he's like, dude, there's so many guys out there just ripping a bugle every hundred yards and all it's doing is conditioning the elk. And so he goes in quiet and just tries to sneak in as close as he can once he locates them. Um, but one thing that he does is he'll take green, green branches and he'll make a fire and just get a really, really smoky fire going and he smokes all of his clothes. And so the first night he's out there, he hangs his clothes up in the smoke and it just creates that cover scent. And he's like, there's nothing better. It's a natural smell. Every elk in the mountains has smelled smoke before. And, uh, he, he said, it's actually, it, it almost makes them curious because they have to know, is this a wildfire that we need to run from or just, you know, the smell of smoke. And in fact, I was, I was talking to him about that. And then I talked to another guy that lives out in Colorado and he didn't use that technique, but one thing they did, they went out to spike camp one year and they started a fire and it was blowing, uh, across this ridge line. And he said, within 20 minutes of starting that fire, we're hanging out and it was still daylight. And we look over and there were two bulls that came up and over this ridge directly downwind of the fire and just stood there and looked at them like they were trying to figure out what it was. And so I have yet to do that, but I'm kind of curious about it. And one, actually one more thing, there's actually been quite a few people I've talked to now that have said a similar thing. There was this um, Native American lady whose property we hunted on and we only hunted there, I think one season, but she said she would get a fire smoldering underneath her tree stand. And she's like, oh, it brings the deer in like you wouldn't believe. And she actually killed quite a few deer. And, uh, yeah, she would just get a bunch of leaves and get it real smoky underneath her tree stand and then climb up in her tree stand and and sit. And she's like, I've killed so many deer that way. She does it every single time she goes out. You must just get them curious just to see what's going on, especially if it's, you know, not making a big sound that's alarming to them that spooks them off. Like, it's probably just like, huh, I wonder what's – going on over there well and and you got to think i mean smoke isn't like a predator you know if if they smell a person they're gonna bolt and i've seen them do that from hundreds hundreds of yards away elk hunting like the wind shifts and all of a sudden they're 700 yards away and they all take off running um but smoke i'd be i'd be really curious how many people actually use this technique and how well it works for them but one of the guys that I know, like I said, he goes out there, he's a pretty diehard elk hunter and he swears by it. And he's had way more success elk hunting with a bow than I have with a rifle. One more, uh, one more question before we hop off and that actually it'll be two, but this one is more hunting related, uh, bucket list hunt. Have you thought about like if, if you could have any hunt or one hunt that you want to do in your life, um, what species, where, and what weapon would you use? Uh, that'd probably be 
one of the top units for elk in either like Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, or one of those Western states, one of the top units. I haven't looked into it as much yet, um, but just one of the top trophy units for elk with a bow, just to be within 30 to 60 yards or even closer of like a 350 inch plus bull, something crazy like that, that would be number one on the list. That's just, it's something that has always gotten me excited and piqued my interest. Even before I was in hunting, I was just like, how do people kill those things? And then I started watching it and it's like, how do people kill those things with a bow? And then how do they get them out? So just get something like that where you would over overnight backpack with probably like two or three of my best buddies. And we just go for seven, 10 days, stay out and shoot a, at least one bull and then pack it all out and just have those memories forever, you know? Oh, just yeah. the experiences, experiencing everything new and exploring with my buddies that that would be just the number one on the list. Yeah, that would be that would be amazing. I have yet to experience that with a bow and I am itching for the opportunity. That's for sure. Um, where can people go and find you? Where can they follow along with what you're doing and how your hunts have been going? Um, I actually post most of my. uh social media outdoor social media stuff to uh my dog's facebook or instagram page i realized when we got this dog um i was posting so many pictures of just him that i just we decided to make a instagram page for him so it's uh pj underscore public lands on instagram that's his instagram handle we do a lot of shed hunting um he's actually done a little bit of blood tracking uh, for me last, I think it's starting last year. And then a uh, couple times this year, I've taken them out and, uh, yeah, just anything outdoors I put on his page. If you want to find me, it's, uh, at Sammy taco on Instagram. It's mostly just personal stuff, but I do post some, some of my deer and stuff on there, but, uh, nice. at PJ public lands. Sweet, man. Well, we will have to do another podcast uh maybe next spring i'm sending my dog off to training and uh hopefully i can get on some sheds i've been working on some shed hunting with him and obviously there's not a whole lot of sheds that squirrels get to him by this point in the year but i've got plenty of loose antlers that i throw out and uh he goes and finds them and he is absolutely in love with it and so i can only imagine once he gets trained on how to actually you know go through the woods and search with his nose um that is gonna man, that's going to take up a lot of time in the spring. I don't know how my wife is going to feel about it, but um, that's that's the type of activity you can get the whole family involved. So I'm pretty pumped about it. Oh, yeah. Me and, me and Parker, we put on easily 100 miles every spring just shed hunting. Um, my wife does come out every once in a while, but it's usually just for short little trips. But uh, yeah, when, when a dog uses his nose and works and everything comes together, it's like no better feeling then when you know that you helped that dog or trained that dog and he, everything connects, it's just no better feeling than that. Yeah, that is awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate you hopping on, taking the time out of your night to come and chat hunting with me and we'll keep in touch. And yeah, we, 
we definitely need to do a podcast about shed hunting and maybe we'll get on a shed trip at some point. That sounds good to me. And that is going to wrap it up for today's episode. Man, what an awesome conversation. I love talking with people who just get hooked on this thing called hunting, and it just seems to happen so fast. I mean, your first deer encounter, especially the first time you send an arrow at one or pull the trigger, there's no other feeling like it. And so I really hope that Sam can connect with one of these big bucks that he's had on camera because it's one thing to have a buck on camera. Don't get me wrong. When I see the picture pop up on my phone or when I go and pull cards, seeing a rack in the frame is unbelievable, but it doesn't even come close to seeing it in person and then to get a shot at one. And so I'm pretty pumped for him. Hopefully he finds success. And some of these hunts that he's talking about doing in the future are gonna be pretty killer. Like going up and hunting in Montana or Wyoming or Nebraska, chasing after whitetail and mule deer on the same tag. That is something that I'm gonna look into and uh, try to set up for the future. So thanks for listening. Hopefully you guys are finding success. I know here in Missouri, like I mentioned, there have been there have been deer that are, are still chasing and I'm getting trail camera updates. And so I'm gonna put in some serious time over the next couple days. And then when I get back from my Texas trip, and see if I can't connect with a super late season whitetail, and hopefully it's still running. That would be incredible. But until next time, always choose adventure, and God bless.